Well, good morning and welcome to this, our latest edition of Well Spoken, Stevenson Harwood's very own oil and gas podcast. My name is Max Lamansky and I'm a partner here in our London office. Uh, and I'm joined today by Stuart Beadnell, also from our London office, and from Singapore, John Simpson and Martin Brown. So good morning, everybody, and welcome. Good morning. Good afternoon, Max. Good evening. Well, quite. Today, our episode is entitled The Drill Down, looking for new offshore energy projects post-COVID-19. I, I think it's fair to say that the background is something like this. 2019 saw a strong recovery in the oil and gas market uh, and plenty of opportunities for new projects. Unfortunately, first a oil price war uh, and then a global pandemic has dealt this some pretty unpleasant turns and things have been very difficult for our clients in the oil and gas industry in the first half of 2020. Uh, we want to look ahead to more positive times post COVID-19 uh, and we are focused today on two of our key oil and gas hubs, uh, London servicing Europe and West Africa and Singapore which is very much our Asian hub for oil and gas for Stevenson Harwood. Will things be more positive in the second half of 2020. Stuart, how do you see the global trends changing? Uh, well, obviously things have to be more positive. They can't probably be less positive than at present. But uh, what we see towards the end of the year, probably running into the beginning of next year, is a, a reappraisal of the projects that are on hold. Obviously, uh, you would hope that uh, clients would want to carry on with the projects that they were planning at the end of last year but uh, I do think that they will have to look at it again uh, in the light of the new market conditions so what we see really is a focus on production uh, get as much production moving as possible probably gas led we think obviously the the gas and LNG market might be at the forefront of people's minds uh, and I think crucially in a is of um, where money is going to be spent, which is why talking to our colleagues in Singapore is important because clients who might have been looking at a project in one place might decide that they're actually going to focus their attention in another part of the world. John, how do you see it panning out? Yes, I, I'm very much in agreement with Stuart. I think that uh, at the beginning of the year and towards the end of 2019, there were a lot of projects in the offing and we were... Uh, asked to look at the documentation for all sorts of projects, mostly in the FLNG space. So I agree that any recovery is going to be gas-led. I also think that for environmental reasons, uh, they're going to be gas-led as well. Uh, it seems to me that many companies are switching from use of uh, petroleum products to gas in an attempt to become more greenhouse gas-friendly in the near term, um, admittedly, LNG still emits green, greenhouse gases, but it is a cleaner product than the use of petrochemicals. And that's something which I think is going to be on companies' minds and which will certainly be something which leads us into a more gas-led uh, set of projects. John, you mentioned uh, gas being cleaner than oil, which I suppose leads us on to the, to the obvious question, which is um, if you've seen... Um, anything on offshore wind farms here in here in the London office that is uh, ever increasing work and we see more and more of, the, of those kinds of projects uh, but um, 
obviously it's very windy uh, around England. I don't know, what's the uh, appetite for that in Singapore? Uh, not a great deal in Singapore specifically. It's called the doldrums for a reason. There's not much wind going on here. However, oh. it is something that happens in North Asia. And uh, I have been involved in a wind farm project offshore Taiwan. Uh, I have seen other offshore wind farm projects in the offing. And I think it's something that is increasingly becoming of interest, but not specifically in our waters. Martin, anything from you on that? No, I think the only thing just to add to that is that we're going to see this uh, transfer of IP at some point. Um, a, lot of, a lot of money has been spent in Europe on the research and development of, uh, of wind farms, both onshore and offshore, and trying to either mirror or use that technology in Asia is going to require some thought to be given to how that IP is protected or shared. That, that sounds like a little bit of a minefield. Anyway, so back to oil and gas. What about a financier's perspective, Martin? What's your view? Well, over the last few years, I think um, most of the players in the oil and gas uh, markets have looked even more carefully at their investment decisions than they would have done before the oil price dropped six years ago. And that scrutiny has, I guess, reinvigorated this year. But as both of you said, as things are moving on an upward trend, they've been dealt a, a blow by both the oil price and the political reasons behind that, the pandemic, and, and not just those, but the physical ability to explore projects. It's impossible to have teams move to uh, locations where projects may be explored. So uh, as the investment decisions have become more complicated and have been looked at in more detail, that's very much in line with how easy or difficult it is to finance these projects, how easy it is to raise the capital. I think one of the consequences that we're seeing of uh, what's happened so far this year is that, that we're likely to see more partners in each project. There's going to be more interplay between equity investors, debt providers, uh, and also the contracting partners as well, whether it's on the EPC, or FEED, O&M, etc. And I think that interplay is going to become more interesting as the year goes on. Do you think, I mean, I know that we were going to come on to this, but if projects are being run as, as sort of consortia, uh, as you discuss there, you see a tendency in some jurisdictions for the partners to try to run the project as an unincorporated joint venture. I know you have quite strong views as to why that doesn't necessarily work particularly well. Perhaps you can let us know what your thoughts are on that. Well, yeah, as you say, we do see quite a lot of exploration being done on the uh, unincorporated joint venture basis. It doesn't work when you have vessels involved. Just from a practical perspective, you need an owning entity to register the ship. It's, it, it's obviously far easier for contracting perspectives and avoiding there's some form of deemed partnership. But um, just simply vessel registration is, and, and creation of security is going to be far harder. So what, what would you normally look at when you're putting together a joint venture? Well, in, in a project like this, there's going to be a number of different uh, aspects. Obviously, looking at a joint venture on a standalone basis is obviously involved, but quite different. Because here, the types of entities who are involved and the partners often will have another role in the project. So, for example, one of the conditions to a contractor operating a unit may be that they put equity into project. Now, that means that they're at both sides of a particular contract and their interests will differ. So trying to work out exactly where liability sits and how both sides' interests are protected is going to be key. So 
it becomes far more complicated as to how uh, that contractual structure looks. Uh, Stuart, I, I can see you're desperate to, to wade in there. No, it's a, it's a very interesting topic because um, the reappraisal that I've mentioned, part of that is one party then speaking to its joint venture partner about whether it wishes to proceed. And you might have a situation where one is saying, yes, I, I, there's an advantage for me going ahead, where the other one might have cold feet. And in terms of bringing others in, uh, we had a quite well-known LNG project we were involved with where there was a joint venture, which then did a joint venture with another joint venture in order to bring in the variety of partners that you needed to make this thing work. So you can imagine that doing the reappraisal process now to get all those parties back together again and say, are we going to go ahead on the same basis as before? A lot of uncertainty there. Uh, and what was the answer? What happened? <laughs> Well, perhaps you wouldn't like to say. Wouldn't like to say, but let's say it's on hold. Okay, fair enough. John, what what are your views? I mean, I, it's um, it sounds complicated to me. Yeah, absolutely. And what I wanted to add to what Stuart just said was that um, uh, part of my remit is as a disputes lawyer, as well as uh, compiling the contracts which go into making up one of these projects. And I have handled a couple of disputes where exactly what Stuart explained has happened and one of the joint venture parties doesn't want to continue with the joint venture. The other one maybe does or maybe wants to do something different. And I was heavily involved in one which related to one of Martin's deals actually, where the joint venture party wanted to buy out the other joint venturer and you have to look very closely at the deadlock provisions in the joint venture agreement and that sort of thing. And I also had another where one of the joint venture parties decided that the joint venture wasn't really for them, so they competed with the business of the joint venture, and there was quite a large dispute which happened as a result of that. Their uh, original joint venture party wasn't very happy about um, their supposed business partner going out and tendering for all the same projects that the joint venture was tendering for. So these can result in some uh, quite interesting and involved uh, issues once you've actually formed the deal then uh, dealing with how uh, you you work through the documents afterwards and um, what happens this is this is a question for martin what happens if one of the banks wants out uh, what happens if you're halfway through a construction project or a, a refurb project uh, and one of the banks gets cold feet maybe there's delay and they don't want to finance those those expensive final installments in the yard what, what what happens next that really just depends on what stage that that financing is at has it been documented is it committed if the banks are, have committed to a project and they want out then either they have to look at a reason to stop that funding whether it's uh, as a result of delay the contract's been breached or they have to find some way to divest their commitment to another bank or another financier but that said quite often there will be stages. So if this is a construction period only funding, then there will obviously be provisions relating to that. But if it's to go into the operational phase as well, then that's just going to be come back to a question of what has happened in the original contract. I have to say, I, I, we, we said at the start that we'd be positive and we'd focus on, on 
the new projects going forward and the good times and we already find ourselves dragged into tales of woe from John and, and, I, and I went a little bit off beam and asked Martin about when the banks want out. Stuart, have you got something more positive to positive, add? To but add? I, I think it's positive in the sense we are trying to anticipate the problems in the hope in some way we can actually help in, in navigate these difficulties so there will be a positive outcome. Yeah, no, and I think that's very right actually because we're looking at very large assets a lot of the time and there's been significant amounts of money spent on them. So the last thing that anyone wants is for the entirety of that investment to have dissipated, to have lost that because of a disagreement between parties. So it's more a question of just what happens? How can we get this thing continuing to operate, even if it is with other people? What are the options? And I think that's really what we have to try to explore. John, what are your thoughts on that? I should just add that the two joint venture disputes which I mentioned were disputes which are the kind of disputes which arise in a positive environment, in fact. One of them, the joint venture, had been so successful that uh, the joint venture party, which was dipping its toe in the water of that area of business, decided to do a lot more of it. uh, And that's what caused the problem because it was competing with its joint venture party. And the other one, the other one was a situation where, despite the difficult times, one of the joint venture parties was desperate to continue and uh, wanted to carry on and their joint venture partner wanted out. And eventually we managed to, well, actually I was involved a little bit, but Martin mostly managed to negotiate a position where our client, which wanted to buy up the joint venture, successfully did so and is now carrying on with that business, which is great news. And I think it's all really just emphasizes the importance of getting your documents right so that it is possible to do these things when circumstances change. So from that, John, what I hear is when times are good, there's a dispute. And when times are bad, there's a dispute. So at least it's positive for you, John. So (laughs) I mean, one thing I would add, I mean, we're all emerging from this lockdown at different rates uh, and at different speeds. How are we going to carry on working as one firm across our, our international offices when are we next going to do some joint marketing? When are we next going to do one of our FPSO workshops in person? Um, how do you guys see it in Asia and in particular in Singapore? It is hard to tell. In Singapore, we have had a, uh, we're doing a staged lifting of the current restrictions and we're into phase two of what is described as the circuit breaker in Singapore which is the equivalent to the lockdown that's been happening in uh, many places in Europe including London. We are at a stage where a lot of my clients are going into the office now. We are still working from home. There are restrictions when you go into the office though. You have to wear masks, you have to maintain social distancing. I don't foresee a situation where we are having a large gathering of people to do a workshop at least until the end of the year. And it may even be longer after that. So it's, it's going to be online for us going forward. Uh, yes, I, that's the way I currently see it. Uh, hopefully things will change soon, but I think without a vaccine, it is quite difficult to predict when it will change. And I think, that, I think our plan is very much to try and move our... Um, to try and do um, off, offshore, sorry, offshore versions, online versions of the offshore workshops. Martin, what do you think? Do you think that will work? I think it will. I think we've all adapted very well in the last few months. And you know, the services that we've provided in the last few months have continued as they did before, maybe just without such the same level of human contact. But you know, the advice has adapted to the circumstances, and that's 
That's a question of the oil and the gas markets rather than us sitting at home compared to in the office. So how we can help people is still going to continue. It just may be that it's more of a virtual rather than in person. But I think we're all very adaptable people. Can I suggest one? I mean, I'm not a great fan of doing it online. It's really good to meet people and be in a room for a day, sharing ideas and, and answering their questions. Of course, that's far better. But there are some advantages of online workshops. It means people can fit it around a time of day that suits them. We can do it in chunks. We can do, say, one morning, one day, another morning, the next. And also, we found that. People do feel able to ask questions quite easily. They might have one particular question that really concerns them, and we deal with it. So all that can be done. There are advantages. So business as the new normal, then, Stuart? If you wish. (laughs) Well, I'm hearing positivity from the room. I'm hearing that we can continue with our workshop programmes, and we think new projects are in the pipeline, uh, no pun intended. John, uh, do you share that view? Absolutely. And we've been conducting meetings on video conferencing and similar facilities. The one thing which I think is very different is that if you're not sitting in a room with somebody who you're negotiating with, it is very hard to read the situation. Video conferencing is better than the phone uh, and also better than in writing. But until we can see each other again properly face-to-face in meetings. I think probably a lot of negotiations will continue to be a bit more protracted. We have been seeing negotiations happening for new projects, but they're taking a bit longer because it's all going backwards and forwards in writing and it's not possible to sit down and uh, negotiate it in person. that's, That's fair enough. Final thoughts, gentlemen, on the next six months. The new projects. For myself, um, I've had clients who are looking quite closely at at the opportunities. And I do feel that in our great cycle of dispute versus new projects, uh, that things are looking positive. Perhaps I could just ask each of you just to conclude on your thoughts on, on that. Stuart, perhaps we could start with you. Well, yes, we talked about JVs. We talked about how many parties might be involved in order to move projects forward. And of course, they would be from different parts of the world. I think one of the reasons for us holding this discussion today was linking closely with our colleagues in Singapore and and dealing with that whole region is becoming more important Uh, and sharing views as we have today I think uh, is really helpful and we'll see more of that going forward. John? I would echo what Stuart says there are a number of clients who we work for across offices who have substantial operations both in Singapore and in Europe and uh, often they themselves are working across offices and it's very helpful for us to be able to liaise with their people in both parts of the world. Yeah, I'd echo that. I think that uh, we're going to start to see uh, more and more new projects. I think it will take a little bit of bedding time whilst there continue to be the fluctuations in both the gas and uh, the opposite fluctuations in the oil prices. But um, all of the stakeholders need to start looking at new projects. They have returns that they put to their stakeholders. So uh, I, I think it's going to be positive for the rest of this year, but perhaps on a muted positivity. And, you know, if, if we, the lawyers, are often... Uh, at least one of the, the last to know because the commercial parties have already been talking in the background for some time before we get involved, then hopefully that note of muted positivity bodes well for the rest of 2020. 
Well, uh, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed Well Spoken and today's edition. One final plug is for our latest edition of Well Connected, uh, which we've just published. And if you'd like to get a copy of that, then do email me at max.lamansky at shlegal.com or you can go onto our Oil and Gas website and you can have a look on there at our various articles and various bulletins. And if you like any of the points on there, then do let us know. So thank you very much and good morning and good evening, everybody. Mm -hmm.